We are in a series of lessons on Psalm 119, exalting the Word of God. I don't know of a phrase that is more fitting for this psalm than to use the phrase exalting the Word of God because that's what the psalmist does in verse after verse, in line after line, in word after word, and yet in all of these 176 verses that exalt the Word, he does so without vain repetition, obviously, because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is a beautiful and full description of the power, the poignancy, the pertinence of the Word of God for our lives and for the lives of all mankind for as long as time stands. We've mentioned that the psalm is an acrostic psalm in which there are paragraphs relating to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and that each uh, paragraph is devoted to each letter, 22 of them, all of which contain eight verses. And each of the eight verses in each of the paragraphs begins with the letter of that Hebrew alphabet that is the paragraph itself. And so we are tonight beginning the eighth paragraph of this beautiful psalm, the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and if we were looking at it in Hebrew, in Hebrew we would see that verse 57, we're looking at 57 through 64 tonight, if you'd like to open your Bibles to the 119th psalm, that each of these verses would begin with that Hebrew letter the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is attributed, the psalm is, by many to David. Some say perhaps some other writer. But it matters not as long as we understand and fully appreciate that this psalm is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's read together through these eight verses and then come back and look at each of them individually. The psalmist here writes, You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O oh Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. In studying this psalm, I could see a division of it that may be helpful to us in remembering the content of this psalm. And let's briefly outline those, and then we'll review them individually as we come back to the verses. I see a claim in verse 57, a claim, you are my portion, O Lord. And then I see a consecration in verse uh, 58, I entreated your favor with my whole heart. 
I see a cry in the latter part of that verse, be merciful to me according to your word. I see an expression about conversion in verses 59 and 60 where he says, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. And then in verse 61 and 62, I see constancy. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. And then at midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. The constancy, once the consecration is in place, there's a constant consecration at all times. And then in verse 63 I see companionship, a fellowship, a companionship that is treasured and and is viewed by the psalmist as being precious as he views the companions, his companions, as those who are also seeking the Lord with their whole heart. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. And then finally, I see the comfort that is expressed as he recognizes and expresses that the earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. The comfort that is derived from the realization that God's mercy, God's goodness is all around us. And he concludes, teach me your statutes. A beautiful paragraph of a very beautiful psalm that exalts the word of God. Go back with me then to verse 57. You are my portion, O Lord. You know, we think about portions. We think about uh, portions when it comes to food, uh, whether we want a larger portion or a smaller portion. We think about inheritances. What will be a, a person's portion or a, por- a portion of, a, of an inheritance? We think about the dividing of the spoils of, of conquest and what portion of the spoils will go to Uh, those who have been involved in that conquest. There are many ways to think about portions. What about our portion in this life? What is it that we view as our portion in this life? What is it that we hold dear? What is it that we hold dearest above everything? I believe that's what the psalmist is expressing here. Here, if David is the author of this, think about it. He's a man who had access to all sorts of worldly treasures, all sorts of material possessions. So much was at his disposal. And yet what he is expressing here is that all of that matters not if I do not have you, God, as my portion. I choose you. I choose you. That's a very poignant thought, I believe. And one that is a sobering thought because we are creatures of choice. That's the way God made us. We have free moral agency and God does not force himself upon any one of us. But obviously it is God's desire that given the freedom to choose that God placed within us, it is God's deepest desire that we choose him as our portion. And yet think about the choices that the vast majority of individuals in this world have made. 
far more people have chosen worldly things as their portion than have chosen God as their portion. And even those who have with their lips made the claim that God is their portion, their lives do not reflect that. And we'll talk more about that as we see the consecration that is involved. You see, we can claim God as our portion, and we should claim Him. But as we claim God as our portion, there's something that follows that, that the psalmist next expresses. I have said that I would keep your words. It's one thing to claim that God is my portion. It's another to recognize that if he is, I must commit to his word. And if I fail to commit to his word, then I cannot with consistency say God is my portion. Because the only way that I show that he is is by keeping his word. What did Jesus say about it? If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. One translation says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's as though we say, if we claim God to be our portion, then we must also commit to keep his words. And the psalmist, by inspiration, wrote this and understood this, that to claim that God is our portion involves the commitment to keeping his word. But it also involves, it also involves a wholehearted commitment. And that gets us to the consecration, which we mentioned earlier, to be fully and wholly consecrated, to say that I am consecrating my life, my whole heart. How much does Scripture say about wholehearted service? Oh, a great deal. How much does it say in the negative sense about divided hearts? A great deal. The prophet Hosea made the statement in Hosea that the heart is divided in Israel. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars according to the bounty of his land. They have embellished his sacred pillars. Was their portion God? No, they had chosen other things, but still tried to hang on to God. But the prophet next writes in verse 2 of chapter 10 of Hosea, their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. Why? Because they have sought to claim God as their portion while worshiping false gods wholehearted service. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. And the second, Jesus said, like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this hang all the law and the prophets. That's the basis of the old law, and it's the foundation of the new in the sense that love for God has to be our top priority, consecration, 
And when the psalmist says, I entreated your favor with my whole heart, the word favor literally is face. I have entreated your face. In other words, I desire to be in your presence. I desire to be face to face, as it were, with the God of heaven. I desire to be in your presence. I have entreated that favor, your face, literally, with my whole heart. And then the cry. The cry for mercy because the recognition is that as human beings, if we are to be in covenant relationship with God, it is only through His mercy and His grace that that covenant relationship is achieved and maintained. Because had it not been for the grace of God that brought Jesus ultimately into this world to die, in our stead there could be no possibility of entreating His favor there could be no possibility of our ever seeing Him face to face. There could be no possibility of our seeking Him with our whole hearts. We need His mercy. We need His grace. Give it to me, the psalmist says, according to your word. And then there's a reflection upon conversion. I believe in the next verses, 59 and 60, First of all, verse 59, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. That's a beautiful description, really, of what repentance is all about. Think about it. There, first of all, has to be a consideration of who we are and where we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 speaks of godly sorrow that leads to or that works as the King James says repentance godly sorrow is not repentance just being sorry as we consider ourselves and where we are in this world and who we are in this world as sinners that in itself is not sufficient godly sorrow works repentance leads to repentance but godly sorrow is not repentance in and of itself. But it is the beginning. And the beginning of repentance, as the psalmist expresses it here, is thinking about or considering our ways. Thinking about or considering our ways. That's what has to happen first. And yet, tragically, there are a great many people who will never stop long enough, think hard enough or long enough about where they are as sinners in this world to ever turn their feet to his testimonies. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. But repentance involves a turning. Judas Iscariot was deeply sorrowful over his betrayal of the Lord, but his sorrow was a sorrow of the world and not the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And thus, rather than repenting, he went out and hanged himself, tragically. But here the psalmist says, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. What is biblical repentance? It is godly sorrow that leads to what? 
a change of mind and a resultant change of life. That is, a turning of the feet, a turning from sin and a turning to God. Go with me to another passage that expresses it beautifully in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 27 and 28. And hear what the Lord says here through the prophet Ezekiel. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Listen to verse 28. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Because he does what? Because he considers, that's the psalmist here, I thought about my ways. He considers and does what? Turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. Turn my feet to your testimonies. Same idea. He shall surely live spiritually. He shall not die. Beautiful commentary by inspiration right here in Psalm 119.59 about what is involved in repentance. One has to be sorrowful for sin, yes, but that in itself is not sufficient. One then has to allow that sorrow to cause him to change his mind and then change his course and to turn his feet toward what? The testimonies, the word of the Lord. How quickly should he do it? Verse 60 reminds us. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Oh, yes. Don't we wish that everyone had the kind of respect for the Word of God that when they look into that Word and they see a change that needs to be made, something that needs to be done according to the will of God, that they would do it without delay? that they would not seek to justify themselves, that they would not seek to rationalize their situation, but that they would simply be an open book, as it were, and look to the book, and then look to obey quickly the commandments of the Lord. As I read this verse, I couldn't help but think about Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 22, where we remember that God tested King James says tempted, but the word in the King James is used at times. The tempt word is used to mean test. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He didn't tempt Abraham to sin. But he tried or tested him by telling him to go to Mount Moriah and to offer his only son Isaac, remember, upon the altar. And after Abraham received that command, Back in Genesis 22, verse 3, following the command from God in verse 2, says this, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, split the wood for the offering, etc., and began that journey. I couldn't help but think about him when I read these words. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Was it a difficult commandment for Abraham to contemplate keeping? 
the sacrifice of Isaac, his only son, upon the altar? Indeed it was. It had to be excruciating. And yet he did not delay to keep the commandments of God. No wonder he's called the father of the faithful. No wonder we call him the friend of God. Let us always be of the attitude to make haste and never to delay, not only to seek his commandments, but to keep his commandments. But then as we go further in this beautiful paragraph in this psalm, I think we then come to what I could see as constancy in the life of the psalmist. The cords of the wicked, verse 61, have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. The cords of the wicked have bound me. We don't know what was at work in the life of the inspired writer here at the time that he penned these words. If indeed it was David, we know that there were many calamities that came into the life of, of David. There were many challenges with which he had to deal. There was a time in his life when he had to flee for his life from the jealous uh, King Saul, the first king of the United Kingdom. There was a time when Absalom, his own son, sought to overthrow him and to take his life. And ultimately Absalom himself died and he had the deep sorrow of losing the son who had sought to betray him. Oh yes, there were many things with which David had to deal in his life. And he had his enemies. And there were times, plural, when the cords of the wicked bound him. But what I see here is an expression of constancy in devotion to God and to his word, no matter what the circumstances may be in our lives. Preston expressed it in his beautiful prayer to God tonight, that in those times of adversity, we need to fully appreciate the presence of God, the assistance of God, the assistance of God's people, to help us during those times when the cords of the wicked seem to bind us. And yet it is at that very time, tragically, that many whose faith falters will actually abandon the God of heaven during those difficult times. The cords of the wicked will bind us at times. The challenges of this life will come but let us be as constant as the psalmist expressed that he was here and never forget the word of God, but cling to it even more tenaciously, if you will, when those times come. And that constancy is also seen, I think, in the next verse. Look at it. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I love that expression, at midnight. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you. Where are most of us at midnight? Most nights I'm asleep. And I trust you are as well if you're able to get to sleep. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> nothing wrong with that at all. But what is expressed here is that obviously there were times in 
the life of the psalmist here where even at, at that midnight hour, he would cry to God. He would express his thanksgiving to God. It's simply an expression of the constancy that needs to characterize the life of the child of God, a constancy concerning praise to God. And think about a passage in the New Testament that may very well come to mind when you think of this giving praise or rising to give thanks at midnight. Where would it be? How about Acts 16, 25? But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. That was a time when at midnight they were not sleeping, they had been beaten and thrown into prison. And instead of pitying themselves, being discouraged and despondent, they were singing hymns to God and praying. The constancy of the Christian, I think, can be seen in these two verses verses 61 and 62. But I think we next see the companionship that should characterize the Christian. And I think there's a very important point here that we need to fully appreciate. As the psalmist declares, I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts and said that a man is known by the company he keeps. The scripture says evil companionships corrupt good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And what this verse reminds me of is the preciousness of the fellowship that we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that there is that special bond and that special closeness and that special relationship that we should never take for granted and that we should always treasure and prize as the dearest possession that we have. It's more precious than, than any other relationship, the relationship that we have or sustain to one another in Jesus Christ. And those to whom we should be the closest are those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ because they are the dearest people of all to us, or should be. Not that family, and not all of us have family who are all Christians. And that's a troubling and tragic thing to us, to love family so deeply, and yet to know that they are either unfaithful children of God who have strayed, or they are those who, who never obeyed the gospel of Christ. That's deeply hurtful. And we are loving them and do love them, but because we love them, we behave ourselves toward them in a way to try to lead them back to God. We've talked about that at various times in terms of the discipline that we exercise, the loving discipline that we extend to those whom we love on this earth to try to bring them home to God. But to those who are at home with God, as it were, that is our faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. They are the closest, they are the closest of all people or should be to us on this earth. Doesn't mean that we cannot have friends outside the body of Christ, but if we have those friends outside the body of Christ, we should certainly be making efforts to win them to the cause of Christ. 
And even though they are our friends and we love them, the relationship that we sustain to those who are in the body of Christ is still a far more and should be a far more precious relationship than any other on this earth. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. Why shouldn't we be companions of those who are of like precious faith, as we often use that expression, and it's a good expression, those who are of like precious faith, because with them we should be the most comfortable, because we share the most important thing there is on this earth, and that is fellowship in the body of Christ, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The final verse is a verse filled with comfort. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. I have come to know and to appreciate that this earth is full of your mercy, that everywhere I look, that all around me I see your mercy. All around me I see your goodness. It's an exclamation, a climactic exclamation, it seems, that brings to, to a climax this paragraph in which the psalmist is claiming God as his portion with the full realization of the kind of consecration and commitment that is involved, the conversion, the constancy, the companionship, and then finally the comfort that is derived from all of those beautiful qualities that we have having claimed God as our portion. Teach me more, teach me more of your statutes in effect, he says. I want to know even more of your word. And that should be the attitude of all of us. More of your word. What about your attitude tonight? Can you say that you hunger for the Word of God? Can you say that you have considered your ways, as the psalmist said he had considered his, and turned your feet to his testimonies? You cannot say that, nor can you claim that God is your portion, that you've chosen him above all else and above everyone else if you have not believed in his Son, his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. If you have not repented, as we have discussed repentance tonight from this beautiful statement in the psalm, if you have not confessed sweetly that you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and if you have not been buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins, he is not your portion, but he waits to be your portion. He waits for you to claim him through his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, in obedience to his simple but essential gospel. We plead with you to do that tonight if you haven't. And if you have, but your feet have turned away from his testimonies where you once walked and you know that your life is no longer in harmony with his will, it can be again as soon as you're willing to consider your ways, think about them, and turn again your feet back to his testimonies in repentance and in confession of any sin that needs to be confessed publicly. As we stand to sing, will you come?